So it's a, a pretty sorry, sordid, nasty sort of a tale. Matthew Henry, in his old commentary on this from uh, 300 years ago, uh, and forgive the sort of the, the quaintness of his old English, but he says this about it. He says, Godly parents have often been afflicted with wicked children. Grace does not flow in the blood, but corruption does. Uh, whatever qualifications you might want to put on that, there's a certain element of truth to it. Uh, kids don't automatically do as you might want them to do. Uh, but our kids have a tendency to show our faults off in, in that those things are replicated in them. Uh, we don't need to train them to do the wrong things. It sort of comes naturally, and particularly if they see those things in us or it's a natural uh, hereditary sort of a thing. But nor is it an excuse for them or for us just to say that because my, my dad or my mum was like this. But there's certainly no effort in uh, becoming bad. I'm going to try and look this morning at this family tree that we're presented in this story. There's five family members we read off in this story. And I'm just going to try and very quickly paint a, a little picture of each of them, just so that we're, we're clear about what's happening. And the first one is Amnon. Amnon is the eldest son of King David, and as the eldest son, he would have been the one who would be expected to become king after David. Uh, but what we're told about him at the very beginning of this story is that he loved his sister, uh, Tamar, his half-sister, uh, Tamar. Um, and as this story progresses, it's very clear uh, that what he is doing, it's, it's an illicit thing, it's a wrong thing. Tamar describes him as an outrageous fool. And even that's quite gentle and it's sort of the idea behind it is it's, it's pure, complete wickedness. It's, a, it's like a, a godless man. That's his attitude. And certainly it was never a love that Amnon had for, for Tamar because immediately after uh, he, he does what, what he wants to do, he, he hates her more than he loved her and he wants rid of her and he just wants to cast her aside. And then the, the other person, obviously, in this story who, who figures prominently is Tamar herself. Uh, Tamar is described as, as the most beautiful daughter of uh, King David. Uh, she is the full sister of Absalom. So David's the father, different mothers here. And she would have been wearing the, the ornate clothing that would have been befitting of a virgin daughter of a king. And so that's a, a picture that's here. And yet at the end of the story, as, as we read, and she, she's left Amnon's presence, the, the, the sense of, of this girl who was described as being uh, full of integrity and a righteous girl and full of virtue, uh, she is describing herself as one who is covered in shame and guilt. Even though she has done nothing wrong, she carries that. And the way pictorially she presents that to the world is that she rips her clothing and she's, got, like, and she's crying as she leaves uh, Amnon's presence. And the sense of shame that she carries is something that her society as a whole would have uh, 
bestowed upon her, even though it was nothing to do with her. She has in that sense compromised. She is, uh, her prospects of future marriage are, are shot. So that's the, the sorry state that we end up with, with Tamar. Another family member that we're reading here is a guy called Jonadab. Uh, he is not a brother or sister. He's a cousin. Uh, he is a son of one of David's brothers, and he's described, I think it's down in verse 3, as being very shrewd and very crafty. And some of the commentators would say that he's the most dangerous out of everybody here. Because Amnon is, well, he's directed by his own lust, and that's what controls him. But Jonadab is politically savvy, and he's thinking about what he's doing, and he's very purposeful, and he's deceitful. And so whilst he has got skills in that regard, there's certainly no sense of being guided by righteousness or, or goodness. Then the other character that's here is Absalom, another son of, of King David, a full brother of, of Tamar. And really this story is but the introduction to the story of Absalom because it predominates over the next number of weeks. And Absalom is described as the most beautiful, handsome uh, son that, that David has. If any of the young fellows here are proud of their hair, uh, that's a prominent feature in Absalom's life and that he had apparently the most beautiful hair. Um, ended up, that was the thing that killed him as it got caught in a, in a bush somewhere and he was left hanging, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, so that's Absalom. And then the other one that we have, and sorry, the thing I should say that what we didn't read in the story is that Absalom committed this cold-blooded murder of Amnon, enraged because of what he had done, because he hated his brother Amnon so much. Now, he may have always hated his brother Amnon, purely because Amnon was first in line to the throne, but he especially hated him because of what he did to his sister. And he just sort of keeps quiet for a couple of years, doesn't anger Amnon in any way, doesn't give Amnon any indication that he's harboring a grudge. And then the bit section that we didn't read is that he orchestrates Amnon's murder. Then the final character is King David himself. And as you look through this story, we say, well, what did King David do at the end of it? Verse 21, we just, it's, he's described as being very angry, and rightly so, because of what Amnon did. But what did he do? We ask, well, he did nothing. And the reason he did nothing is because he was morally compromised because just two chapters earlier, he has committed adultery with Bathsheba and as well as that, he has arranged for Bathsheba's own husband to be killed. So he is morally compromised and he can't say a thing. So that's the, the characters in this story. But the question I think that you ask, and I would ask, as unpleasant as this story is, why is this story in the Bible? I mean, this isn't television. This is not a soap opera. This is not your regular daytime or morning time TV programs where people love to delve into all those chaotic lives and uh, twisted lives of people where, where everything is, it just seems so dysfunctional. This is the Bible. It's, it's none of that. It's not a soap opera. This is the Bible, which the Bible is described in 2 Timothy 3.16 as being 
profitable. Remember that this is the Bible that is profitable. So where's the profit to us from a story like this? What good is it? And as I've been asking myself that, I am glad that such a story is in the Bible because things like this, it's real life, as unpleasant as it is, unnatural as it is, wrong as it is, it still describes sections of life and experiences of certain individuals and certain people. And people who have gone through and can resonate with a story like this because they themselves know it or they know of others who have gone through situations like this, they will be glad that the Bible speaks to a situation that they can connect with. And so the Bible wouldn't be the Bible if it didn't drag all of life up so that we can see what all of life is, is really like, so that the Bible can take every hurt, every, every painful encounter, every situation of darkness and wickedness, and just lay it before us, help us to see it. And what the Bible is then underscoring and reminding us today, and why we're thankful for stories like this, is that there is not a circumstance. There is not an event of life that the Bible doesn't address and speak to. So what God is doing through the scriptures here is that God is laying out this family's lifestyle and all its gory details like a soap opera because our lives are like soap operas. None of us is, is perfect. We are, we are all very much impure. We are all very much affected by life as it goes all and around us. And then this same word of God, this same word of God, which is described as coming near, God comes near to us through his word. Now, Tamar is never mentioned again in the Bible. So we don't know what happened to her, really apart from the fact that she lived her, her days in Absalom's house. So we don't know what happened to her or even how she mentally coped with the change that obviously happened to her. But as I was suggesting, there are many people in our society, in our world, people maybe even known to you, who have experienced something similar. And sometimes, when, or even if you don't know anyone like that, there are situations on television that, that we hear people maybe talking about their own experiences. And sometimes people who have gone through this, and they will maybe try and say what helped them in those moments afterwards and how they were able to cope mentally and psychologically with the, the damage that has been inflicted upon them. And another common feature of that is just this, this, this idea how negatively that people might think of themselves. Even though they have done nothing wrong themselves, they may still carry those negative connotations. And even though they are innocent in that sense, they still carry a sense of guilt and shame. And then as we think back and put those thoughts and experiences into Tamar's life, we wonder how did Tamar cope? How did Tamar cope psychologically with what happened to her? Someone like Tamar would have benefited 
from what we might say gospel words being spoken into her life because she certainly didn't feel good about herself. I mean, she speaks here about feeling this guilt and feeling this shame and what will I do about this? Some of those gospel words might be images and pictures from a Bible passage like Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is probably not one of the books that we might read very often, but in Zechariah chapter 3, there, there is an image which I think resonates with this story because very prominent in that story is clothing and the, the change of how Tamar's clothing is presented as being ornate and beautiful and then this sense of defilement. But in Zechariah chapter 3, there is a, an image presented of Joshua representing the nation of Israel standing at the front. And as Joshua is standing at the front, he is described in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, as standing before the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. But that's not the end of the picture, because it's also describing Satan in that image and in that prophecy. And in verse 1, Zechariah chapter 3, it says, Satan was also standing at his right hand, to accuse him. So we've got this image of, of Joshua standing, feeling the guilt, feeling the shame, and very clearly the sense of accusation. Satan himself pointing his finger. And Joshua is standing with a sense of the shame and the guilt, not only because of his own sin, but because Joshua is standing as representative of the nation of Israel and bearing the nation's sin. But there is good news from Jesus in that story because the angel goes on to say in verse 4 of Zechariah chapter 3, take off his filthy clothes. And then he says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. That image then of removing the filthy garments and being clothed with the, the fine linen, pure garments is a reminder ultimately of what Jesus Christ has done for each of us. In that he took our sin on the cross and he bore the guilt and the shame and all that is wrong and he clothes us now in righteousness. So today we can come with our guilt and our shame and we can bring it to Jesus. We can bring the, the guilt of our own sin, the sins that we have committed and in that sense done to others, or also the guilt and the shame that we may carry because of the sin that other people and the actions that other people have done to us that we may still feel and carry as our sin and guilt and shame. And that's actually then why the passage we have just read today can be so appropriate to what we are doing later in a few moments from now when we are gathered around the table of Jesus Christ because we remind ourselves of the invitation of Jesus that we can unburden ourselves of our shame and our guilt and our sin and we simply leave that with Jesus. And we remind ourselves of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ to cleanse us and to forgive us and to give us new life. 
The power of sin is broken. Romans 6 verse 14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So this story, 2 Samuel 13, why we're glad it's here is because what this passage does is that this passage forces you to go to Jesus. Because what this passage does is that what it reminds you is that where you may feel the guilt and the shame and everything associated with that all that negativity and all that you have done wrong and the fact that you can't clean or clear yourself off that you remind yourself of the only one who can because only Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can save. You can't clean yourself up a bit, clear these things out of your lives. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus is the only one who can save you, who can help you, who can draw near to you, who can surround you with his love and deliverance. So even as we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as we would do that today, we remind ourselves of the significance of this his blood shed for us, his body broken for us. And it was to free us from our guilt, from our shame, from our sin, and that in Jesus, we are forgiven. In Jesus, we are clean. Let's just pause in prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminder of our sin, though it is heinous, obvious, though we feel the shame and the guilt at times. May that drive us to Jesus to find his blessing and his forgiveness. Amen.